You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. In seasons one and two of Learning How to See, we looked at bias. We explored our built-in obstacles to seeing. We explored how contemplative practice can help us think about our thinking to observe our biases so we aren't quite so controlled by them. Since the series began in 2021, the largest number of questions we've received have to do with people deconstructing their faith. They've seen how faith can easily become a product of confirmation bias, community bias, confidence bias, and other biases we discussed. They've wondered if there's another way to see, approach, experience, practice Christianity. The subject of faith deconstruction isn't new to me. I began writing about this subject back in 1998, and my 2001 book, A New Kind of Christian, was seen as a kind of portal into the deconstruction process. Now, over 20 years later, new waves of people of all ages are taking a second look at Christianity. That's why our theme for season three is learning how to see Christianity. If you were born into Christian faith, you may resonate with this passage from my upcoming book, Do I Stay Christian? I felt like a boy who was born into a loving family. His parents, uncles, aunts, and cousins were close-knit and fiercely protective of one another, and the whole extended family was successful and prosperous. The boy's childhood was filled with delicious food, spacious homes, new cars, great vacations, exciting entertainment, everything that anyone could wish for. Family is everything, his dad said at every holiday, and there is no family like our family. The little boy felt in his bones that his father's words were true. In his teenage years, however, the boy began discovering that his family had secrets. One discovery led to another until the boy realized his happy, close-knit family was part of something called the Mafia. When he confronted his father about this, he was told that if he wasn't willing to become part of the family business, to keep its secrets and maintain its loyalties, he would be disowned forever, or something even worse might happen to him. He was either all in or completely out. That's the kind of identity crisis I have struggled with through my years as a Christian. The boy in my little parable had to grapple with a paradox. His family was simultaneously the warmest, safest, closest, most loving experience of belonging he had ever known. And yet to outsiders, it was something very different. Listen as I read this passage from Do I Stay Christian? Like any religion, Christianity is a complex mixture of many different things. It varies across space and over time. A religion is always in the making, and it becomes what its adherents make it. First, Christianity can be understood historically or culturally 
as a legacy you are born into or enter by choice. To be a Christian is to inhabit a cultural or historical tradition. Second, Christianity can be defined institutionally as a power structure or hierarchy in which you participate. To be a Christian is to affiliate with an institution and accept its authority structure. Third, Christianity can be defined doctrinally as something you believe. To be a Christian is to affirm a system of beliefs or teachings. Fourth, Christianity can be defined liturgically or pragmatically as a set of rituals you practice. To be a Christian is to engage in some version of Christianity's rituals or practices. Fifth, Christianity can be defined spiritually or experientially as something you feel or a conversion experience you've had. To be a Christian is to have, foster, and share a set of experiences. Sixth, Christianity can be defined moralistically as a shared set of moral values or precepts. To be a Christian is to live your life by a moral or ethical framework. Seventh, Christianity can be defined missionally as a program, plan, or movement for intentional action in the world. To be a Christian is to take on that mission as your own. Eighth, Christianity can be defined demographically as a sociological or anthropological identity. To be a Christian is to identify yourself as a member of a recognized group. Ninth, Christianity can be defined politically as a way of organizing people for political action or inaction. To be a Christian is to act as part of a coalition with shared theopolitical aims. Tenth, Christianity can be defined socially as a community of people in whose presence you feel safe, welcome, needed, accepted, or supported. To be a Christian is to enjoy an experience of social belonging with others who identify as Christian. And eleventh, Christianity can be defined linguistically as a shared set of words and ways of communicating. For the next few moments, ask yourself this question. What has Christianity been in my life? What has it meant to me? And don't be surprised if many answers, even contradictory answers, arise for you. Well, I'm so happy to be with two good friends, Diana Butler Bass and Mike Petro. Um, I wonder uh, if I could just say a couple things about each of you, but then I'm going to invite each of you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Diana, you and I have, uh, we've been friends for a long time. We, I feel like we've been kind of conversation partners on a journey for a couple of decades now. People know you because of uh, your amazing books and your speaking and uh, and lately through your amazing presence at Substack and the incredible writing you've been doing reflecting on contemporary events. Um, but I wonder if you could tell everybody a couple things about yourself that they may not already know, Some maybe something personal and something professional either in either order. How about it? Okay. Well, this is challenging. It took me a little while to come up with something because I've 
I've written so much memoir. <laughs> And first of all, I just want to say, Brian, thanks for having me here with you and to be able to talk about your new book is an honor. And I think that people do know that we're we're good friends. I feel like you're my brother. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's been a joy for all these years to be in conversation and to be thinking out of different sides, I think, in some ways of the same brain. Um, So uh, to go to your question. I wanted, before anything else, to be an archaeologist. Is that so? That makes sense to me, actually. That is so. I was just fascinated by the past. And when I was a little girl, I would go and check out books on ancient Egypt and ancient Mexico and all kinds of civilizations that were being dug up all around the world. And I would bury myself in them from the (laughs) library. And it was just sort of wonderful. And that relates to the second thing, that's the personal thing that people don't know about me, is that I'm actually terrified by the outdoors. So that kind of killed. <laughs> I hate snakes and spiders and dirt and dust. And and so that kind of killed my career as an archaeologist. And um, that's a story in my life most people don't know. <laughs> I've had to. I didn't know I've that. had to learn to love the outdoors. So the the author of Grounded um, didn't take to it naturally. Uh, that even adds more richness to that uh, one of my favorite books that you've written, Grounded. So Mike, um, to give everybody a little introduction to yourself, and including your uh, your title at the Center for Action and Contemplation. That's where you and I got to know each other, and it's really been one of the real many joys. Uh, of for my involvement at CAC has been getting to know you and work with you. Oh, Brian, that's that's super kind. What an honor. And what an honor to be here with the two of you today. I really appreciate it. I am officially titled as a content specialist. And so what that means is I help a bunch with the Center for Action and Contemplation's Living School. I do a whole bunch uh, with them uh, with curriculum design, which is when you and I get to work together, which is so much fun. My background Amongst kind of a pastoral background in my first life, I also sort of have uh, degrees in comparative religious studies, mythology, Jungian psychology, some grief and trauma stuff. So so that's kind of my area of focus, and that's what I bring to my work at the center. And, and uh, yeah, it has been so much fun working with you, and especially I'm so stoked to have been able to immerse myself in your new book. It is just amazing. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Well, h- how about it? Uh, something personal and something professional that people might not know about you. Uh, okay, so I'm going to go nerdy on this one. Personal, professional. Um, professional, I worked in a theater in Midtown Manhattan for a while. Um, and helped kind of uh, manage a theater and run a spiritual community out of there for all, which was really, really enjoyable. Someone spread the uh, not completely untrue rumor that I was trained in dream analysis. So I ended up having a lot of really interesting pickup conversations <laughs> with random actors who would walk in and say, I hear you know something about dreams. So that was a very interesting season of life. I enjoyed that a whole bunch. And something personal would be as a good deconstructed fundamentalist who was not allowed to go near anything that had anything to do with magic when I was growing up. Uh, some co-workers at the center and I have a Dungeons and Dragons night once a week. Oh. Where we play that. Because <laughs> we were never allowed to when we were kids. Perfect. Uh, it's so great. I can just picture it. Uh, this is our our first episode of this uh, third season, and I want to give a little context. In seasons one and two of Learning How to See, we looked at bias, and we 
began with kind of the assumption that seeing is a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> um, and that in order to see, we in order to see what's really there, we have to address and compensate for biases, biases that keep us from seeing what's there and instead make us see what we wish were there or what we want to be there or what somebody told us we should see there and any number of other uh, permutations on actually seeing. Since those first two seasons of learning how to see, the largest number of questions we received have had to do with people deconstructing their faith. The people uh, realize that when it comes to seeing the way they see God, the way they see religion, the way they see morality, they're all subject to these biases that we talked about. And there are so many people who are going through this kind of uh, questioning, uh, trying to get a fresh look. Um, obviously, uh, Diana and I have both been writing about this subject for a long time. I think back uh, 1998 was my first book. And what's especially interesting to me is now 20 years later, over 20 years later, it feels like a new waves of people of all ages are taking a second look at Christianity. So that's why we set up our theme for season three to be learning how to see Christianity. And Diana, in many ways, all of your books are addressing that uh, struggle, but your most recent book, Freeing Jesus, it seems to me goes right to the heart of things, doesn't it? It's saying, if we want to see Christianity in a fresh way, we've got to see Jesus in a fresh way. I wonder if you would just uh, share any of your thoughts on that. Yeah, the the question of how we see and what, are, what the lenses are that allow us to understand our lives and the world more deeply is a question that I've cared about for a really long time. And so I think that each one of my books is an attempt to do that, to offer a different lens into a, a problem. And it just really struck me that you talked about how your first book was in 1998. My first book was in 1996. And a lot of people didn't read it because it was my, my dissertation. And, um, it was really about the history of the Episcopal Church in 19th century America. And uh, the central question there was a question between uh, form and spirit. What's the relationship between a lively spiritual life and the forms that we have in religious institutions? And so the one of the big problems in the 19th century Episcopal Church was around the liturgy and baptismal rites and high church versus low church, all kinds of really interesting questions about liturgy. And so so this question of, of spirit and form, in effect, I think, is a question that sort of has haunted me. And how do we understand where and how the divine, where God, this, the Holy Spirit is operating in our lives, in our institutions, and uh, the world around us. What gives us the capacity to even understand any of that? And so I've come at that through history. I've come at it through theology. I've come at it through issues related to, you know, sort of experience and, and epistemology. But I think in the latest book, what I really wanted to do was just sort of settle down into the basic issue or the basic sort of central reality of Christianity. Because people started asking me, I don't know, about 10 years ago, why do you stay Christian? You know, why to, to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to borrow a phrase uh, from someone's new book title, what makes you still Christian? And, you know, I'd have all sorts of fancy answers. And then eventually I'd just say, well, 
It's because of Jesus. And it really is that. I think that once a month, at least, I ask myself, why am I not Jewish? And uh, the answer always winds up being, well, it's because of Jesus. And so, so in freeing Jesus, that's just where I wanted to go and think about who is Jesus really? Who has Jesus been for me? And why has that been so central um, to my own life story? And how has that related? Um, so this idea of spirit and form, how has that related to my life as a churchgoer, as my person, as a person in the political arena, as a person who cares about sort of a whole host of these big social problems that we're facing right now? And I think sort of just kind of to wrap up where freeing Jesus has taken me is that somehow staying Christian is about staying in and with and through Jesus. Jesus has everything to do with it. And that really that really matters to me. Yet Jesus has not stayed the same for me through my whole life's journey. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to be open to understanding that even though there's one verse in the in Hebrews that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I have not stayed the same yesterday, today, and forever. The church does not stay the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, in a very real way, Jesus has changed for me. Jesus changes for the world. Jesus changes for the institutions of faith uh, of faith for the church. And so, with all of those changes. I just want to recognize that that's actually the arena of the work of the Holy Spirit and that it is okay to deconstruct things. It is okay to reconstruct things. As a matter of fact, I think if you're not doing that kind of work of letting the end of one image emerge for you and a new image of Jesus be born for you, you're probably in a pretty static place with your own faith. So anyway, those are just some of the things that I'm thinking about right now. But my work is very is surprisingly cohesive arc uh, since the late 1990s. And uh, the kinds of trajectories it's taken me on always are dancing around these same sort of central questions, but doing it in ways that are different and always surprise me as an author. Boy, what a great starting point for this conversation. Um, in uh my book, uh, Do I Stay Christian? I tell a little parable of a boy who grows up in a super loving family, uh, super close. Everybody talks about how important family is. And this little boy just thinks, I must have the best family in the world. And then he gets to be 14, 15 years old and finds out that his family is part of something called the mafia. And uh, suddenly what has been for him, nothing but a wonderful, great close-knit experience, he finds out has a a kind of secret side to it. I use this as a way of saying a lot of us experience Christianity this way. It's nothing but good for us. But then things start to come out and we start to think maybe this isn't all good after all. And, And it puts us in this posture of having to rethink what our relationship to Christianity is. And I'm wondering, first, Mike, can you remember any 
particular experiences like that, that were your moments of saying, I think I'm in the mafia, or I think this family isn't what I thought, what, what I always thought it was. <laughs> uh, well, Brian, as a good originist, I have experienced that literally and, and symbolically. Um, when I first started your book, that one hit really, really, really close to home. I grew up in a family of church planters. And so at one point, four of my five nuclear family members were pastors. And we were sort of pillars of a local community. And so I literally experienced this because there was a point where a lot of scandals came out and I suddenly realized that my pure and holy family was not what I thought it was. Mm. And, you know, I jokingly say to people, one of the greatest gifts that life can give you is to drag the skeletons out of your closet and put them out on the front porch where everyone can see them because it's, it's a liberation in a very strange way. The same time that that was happening, I had this beautiful gift of growing up as a fundamentalist and then being gifted um, this mainline liberal Protestant education from the Moravians who are just, I cannot say enough good things about the Moravians conversation for another time. But through the personal deconstruction that forced me to see that the story I thought I was living was completely different. Um, and happened so publicly that it forced me to slow down and rethink and actually listen to a lot of other people's perspectives on sort of what I was going through. And then this beautiful academic deconstruction where I started learning about so many different lenses into what Christianity actually was. And growing up thinking that I was part of the this, you know, select minority that really got Christianity. And then I started to realize how many different views there are, how many different people think they're the ones that really have it, and how much you know, what it meant to grow up in a Christian culture, where even if we refer to it as a post-Christian culture, it's still sort of the air we're breathing all the time. It was a devastating loss and a devastating liberation for me. Actually, I, I, I knew that about your family background, but I didn't think about how relevant that would be to this question. But, you know, that instantly makes me empathize because uh, I have a number of friends who come from famous religious families where their father was a mega church pastor or, you know, their grandfather was a you know super, super famous theologian. And then different information comes out, scandals come out. And it's the same thing. It's the sense, I thought we were perfect. I thought we were great. And then you find it, oh, there's this whole hidden side here. Um, Diana, I'm sure you have so many examples of this, but maybe you could just share one when you look back where you felt that kind of, oh man, there's stuff going on here I didn't know about. Well, you know, I always love hearing these stories from friends of mine who grew up within fundamentalism, within evangelicalism, because I didn't. You know, my earliest experiences were all in mainline Methodism. And there are certain kinds of ways that I've come to really appreciate growing up in the more liberal Protestant traditions as a real gift. I always just sort of took it for granted. You know, Methodism is kind of, you know, it's kind of nice. It's a little bit, uh, in some ways, you know, overly uh, saccharine sometimes in its piety. Um, it's all about goodness and being being pleasant to people and all. And you know what? Those things are really important right now. 
You know, <laughs> and I never thought when I was learning that when I was a little kid, I always thought I was just kind of shallow and silly. But what I was growing up in was this incredibly rich ecumenical environment that taught me uh, that all different kinds of religious perspectives mattered, that people coming from all different, um, you know, ethnicities and countries and racial groups and everything mattered. Uh, we did not have a picture of white Jesus hanging up in my Sunday school classroom. What we had instead was this little picture of uh, children from every sort of ethnic group you can imagine all holding hands together in a circle um, with Jesus in the background. I think it was a, a picture that was sort of like a cross between Methodist vision of, uh, of unity and a United Nations children's poster. <laughs> and so, and so the, the, my environment actually sort of taught us that we weren't the best um, and that we weren't the only, but instead we were part of a big, um, amazing family of humanity that stretched across the globe. And, you know, I grew up, too, um, in a working-class family in Baltimore City in the 1960s. You know, I was surrounded by issues regarding racism. I was uh, looking at, you know, sort of issues as a child. I was looking at issues of sort of urban decay and all kinds of all kinds of social problems were sort of in the environment around me. So I never had any illusions of perfection. <laughs> and I never had any famous relatives that I had to live down. Um, <laughs> which, which, which is such a wonderful thing. Uh, so I came to evangelicalism later, and then I had to live past it. But what I think is very interesting about this conversation, Brian, is as soon as you tell a story about the mafia, I might not understand that regarding church, but I do understand that regarding America. Because there was, in my Methodism, this sort of openness and this generosity and this ecumenism, but we also were bound together with all these different other Protestants in our belief that America was the best. In the, you know, the communists were bad. America was the best. We might not have done everything completely right, but we were certainly the closest thing to God's blessed society in the world. And it wasn't really a Christian nation in the way that evangelicals learned it, but it was a, a nation of nice Protestants who always try to do the right thing. And in effect, that's my kind of mafia moment is to realize uh, this this story you're telling about the little boy growing up in the family where all of a sudden he realizes he's part of the mafia, I think is really a larger cultural story of this moment. In effect, so many white people are finally understanding that we have grown up in a story about the church, maybe, perhaps, like you two, that was not true. Um, but we also grew up in a story about our country that was... Um, either purposefully not true or just sort of a state of denial not true, that it shapes the world of how white folks, you know, see the universe. And so this is why I suspect the moment is so upsetting for so many, is that two stories are being broken open, a story of church and a story of state. And for me, it's less of a of a breaking open of the church story because my church story was different. But 
we're all facing the other one. You know, all of us who have had any level of privilege associated to who, what our skin color is, you know, where we, we grew up in terms of our ethnicity, our racial identity. And so, so I think that it, your book becomes, in that sense, very universal. You know, it, it, as you were saying that, I was thinking back to the first two seasons when we talked about biases, and uh, one of the the most powerful and basic biases is confirmation bias, the idea that we get a story and we then accept information that confirms that story and we reject information that undermines it as long as we possibly can, because it's just more efficient and easy and comfortable for us to not have to change our story. And then another one of the biases is called conspiracy bias. And that says we're attracted to stories that present us as the innocent victims or the heroic victor, heroic, uh, you know, character. And we were tend to reject stories that present us as the villain in any way. So in a sense, just those two biases out of many others help reinforce these ways of telling ourselves, whether it's a family or a nation or a religion, who we are. And we have good reason to be suspicious. And and I guess we might say this is part of developing a contemplative mind to give a second thought to those inherited stories, to think critically about them and be open to the possibility that we have flattered ourselves and we have, uh, we've whitewashed our history. You know, uh, Diana, one of my favorite books of yours, um, is a people's history of Christianity. I think it was 2009 that that came out and you talked about big C Christianity. And I, if I remember correctly, it was the the big C's were, we tell our story in terms of Christ Constantine, Christendom, Calvin, and Christian America. Now, I know Catholics would would tell the story a little bit different, um, and Calvin might be less important, and Augustine and Aquinas uh, would be a lot more important. But um, you say that that is a militant Christianity with an us-against-them morality tale, and you said that this is the result of, and in a sense, perpetuates spiritual amnesia uh, and broken memories, meaning that we don't really know our past. We don't really have an accurate understanding of our story. And as a church historian, this has been a big part of your work, hasn't it? Trying to help us find another way to tell our story. Yes. Everything that you were talking about, I kept thinking to myself, you were talking about how the contemplative sort of approach uh, breaks through those falsehoods, you know, and allows, gives us a different kind of eyes to see ourselves and our stories, etc. Well, for me, that's always come through being a historian. You know, historians enter every story with a little bit of skepticism. I mean, we we ask the question of, well, who wrote this story? And what uh, what evidence is there for this story? And are there other stories um, that can be told in conjunction with this story? So I think that my inclination, I talked about wanting to be an archeologist at the beginning of all of this, is my natural vocational inclination has always been to want to pull back the layers. Excavate. Yeah, and really see what we can see. What can we really know? And so, yeah, excavating history, excavating stories, excavating faith, whatever it happens to be. And um, I think in that, I've always known that despite the fact that I didn't like snakes and didn't want to get dirty with the real work of archaeology, is that even being a historian in a library is about snakes and, and dirt. 
Mm, Um, Because as you excavate any story, you're going to find beautiful things, uh, but you also find things that are going to bite you. And you have to be prepared for that. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. So I just think what an important insight that is for us to say for people who are thinking, I'm having second thoughts about Christianity. I, I know I'm supposed to be a team player and say we're on the right team and the good team. And then they start saying, hold it, there's an awful lot that doesn't seem right here. I guess what we're saying is you're not doing anything wrong. Even though some other people are telling you the opposite, we're saying you're, you're being a responsible, thoughtful, moral human being. You're growing up. You're, you're getting rid of your spiritual amnesia. Um, uh, I want to come back to uh, a couple insights from people's history in a minute, Diana. But, Mike, I'm thinking about your studies, especially in origin, uh, one of the early uh, intellectuals and, and really just brilliant figures in, in Christian history. And I'm, I'm wondering how those studies and and your interest in uh, deep historical theology, how that helps you see that Christianity has been many different things in in different times. And and, yeah, I'm just interested in how your your background brings you to grapple with this. The fast flyover that is I had sort of, as many do, I'd exited an interest in Christianity, was really captivated with um, Buddhism and Taoism. And Jung, Jung's writing on that. And I tripped over a statement in which Carl Jung said that early Christianity was the most successful treatment plan for the ills of the human soul ever conceived. But then it was inherited by empire and reinterpreted. And then the empire collapsed and it was inherited by a bunch of warring tribes and reinterpreted as a as feudalism. And so this captivated me and I I, I started looking. I love this I, this metaphor of like the archaeology of going through the library. Yeah. It's so it's so brilliant. Um, so thank you so much for that, Diana. Uh, I, I started looking for this early ancient Christianity that Jung was so captivated with. And so that meant like literally traveling um, to some places and some monasteries and, and finding my way back. And what what I realized when I found Origen Wright, who's absolutely my teacher in this season of my life, just absolutely my favorite, is how completely different the the Christianity that he taught at that point was from what I had experienced, and even the, the many, many varieties of what I experienced today, and then and then working way, my way backwards to realize how different Christianity has been and how many different things it's been simultaneously over the centuries. Um, and I've loved Origins theology because it gives me a really, really good vehicle of exploration for that. Because he's always he's always looking at things through a multifaceted lens. One of my favorite things that he's said 
is that, um, you know, he talks about reading scripture and he says that there are arranged stumbling blocks, absurdities, impossibilities, and offenses to keep us from being satisfied with the status quo. The actual word for stumbling block, I think, is scandala. So he taught me the very things that scandalize us about the religion are the things that break open the narratives that we're being force-fed and we're accepting that are just not good enough to force us to look for a deeper meaning. So I don't know if I've actually answered your question or not, but I will say it's been so enriching and life-giving for me to realize how many different shapes and sizes Christianity has taken over the years, and also to realize that in early Christianity, there was a, a theology of deconstruction that was baked in as the very best of the tradition. When I hear you say that, Mike, I realize that the ecumenical flavor of Protestantism in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when, um, you know, I was small, a small and experiencing that world, really created an environment in which when I ran into the idea that Christianity was not one thing, but many things, I could accept it. It, it, there was no mm-hmm. idea that that was problematic for me because I already knew in my own place, time, et cetera, that there were lots of different kinds of Christianity. There were just lots of flavors of it. And so when later on I'd be sitting in a classroom and some professor would say, well, you know, there was no such thing as Christianity in the second century, but all there were were Christianities, I went, oh, okay. Because that's just like what I know to be the case. It actually baffles me to think about people growing up in a world where they thought that Christianity was a singular thing. And yet you're saying that that was really the problem that you, that origin has cracked open for you. Absolutely. And it was, it was, um, I think for me, because I did grow up in that insular environment where we were convinced you know, I mean, I, I grew up in a in a church. We were wondering if people who didn't speak in tongues would go to heaven, and like we were interceding for for Presbyterians and Methodists to find Jesus. You know, it was that kind <laughs> well, of well. Thank you very much. <laughs> you are you are welcome. You are welcome. Yeah. So so to get to get a snapshot for me, it was just I just needed one peek at something different. So when I found like that Alexandrian Christianity, where so many different ideas were in dialogue. And then from there, reach out to the ancient world and realize, oh yeah, so there were there were so many different ideas. It was it was an ongoing conversation, and so much of it was about exploration as opposed to maybe explanation and dialogue over definition. At least at one point, that did harken back to what I experienced in the Moravians, and it's such a gift to realize that that can be can be so. Uh, but yeah, no, it was just definitely not something I knew growing up. I remember meeting uh, a a Greek Orthodox. Uh, uh, Christian when I was probably in my 20s. And what was so great for me as a Protestant was to meet someone who was sure that she was better than me because we thought we were better than everybody else. And and I'll never forget what she said to me was, we believe what has always and everywhere been believed by all true Christians. And those words always and everywhere, she was absolutely confident of. And of course, the irony for me is, well, hold it. I consider myself a Christian and I'm not included in what you say is always and everywhere believed. But 
I realized, oh, other people have the same idea that our vision is the only vision. And um, where I live now uh, in Southwest Florida, I live near a very large Catholic community that is has that same sort of Catholic exclusivism. And, and is v- in some ways, it's a pre-Vatican II kind of Catholicism that has that same idea. We are part of the one true church that has it right, and every question is answered. And so I think part of what we're a good starting point for us here is that that if that's the kind of Christianity you've inherited, if you're having fun and enjoying it and feeling really superior, we might want to say it's not quite that simple. And if you're feeling alienated and frustrated and wondering, I don't want to be part of this anymore, um, I think we're saying, well, there are more than one. There's more than one way to look at what Christianity is. Does that does that ring true? And 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 Diana, this connects with something else that happened in your book, People's History of Christianity. I remember one of the things I felt like you were doing in that book is giving people a variety of metaphors to think about what Christianity is. You talked about Christianity as a way, a cathedral, a word, a quest, and a river. And you could pick any one or two of those if you want to riff on it a little bit, but talk about how any of those metaphors, in a sense, jolt us out of this idea that Christianity is the one system of belief that per, that was dictated to us by God and gives us all the answers, whether it's an evangelical version, an Orthodox, Catholic, whatever version. It's funny that you would uh, remind me of that, Brian, because I pick up on that same sort of literary device in Freeing Jesus. And yes. so I talk about these different metaphors for Christianity in people's history. And then I use six metaphors in Freeing Jesus as uh, teach uh, Jesus as friend, teacher, savior, Lord, way, and presence. And so I think that... Um, Probably since the word way is repeated in both of them, <laughs> it yes. might, that might be a good way, a good place to, to sort of address your question. When I wrote about the way, I think that in both of the cases, whether we're talking about Christianity or talking about Jesus, Jesus in Jesus' own being, we have this sort of idea that the way is a, a you know, a single focused sort of route that you cannot deviate from. There, There is that idea. And I think that's what you're just saying about the one true church. So some people say, oh, you know, well, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to me except that. And so it's like a the way becomes um, almost like around uh, here in D.C., uh, where I live, uh, we've got these freeways, and uh, they're building these giant walls on either side of the freeway as sound blocks uh, for the poor people who live near the freeway. And sometimes when I'm on one of those one of those stretches, I think about that verse. I think of it like a, a freeway. There, Everybody's going, you know, 80 miles an hour, uh, the same direction. And there are these giant walls on either side. And you couldn't get off and you can't slow down even if you tried. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think that sometimes when we hear that word related to faith or we hear that word related to Jesus, that's the kind of understanding of way that we have. Where um, in both uh, people's history and in Freeing Jesus, I try to loosen it up and talk about uh, a way of life. And that is not like a freeway, but instead that's a an experience of 
following, of learning, of sometimes having to turn around and go back from where where you came from and trying something different, um, is that you're embracing these these sorts of um, practices and stories and traditions that have been passed down, and you sort of try them on, and you're and you're you're letting those things shape you as you go on a journey with um, with others, um, with uh, the Holy Spirit, with with the person of Jesus, um, with people from the past, and so I think of a way much more like. Um, the Canterbury Tales, you know, a whole bunch of people who are on a goofy journey together, sort of body a little bit, like, uh, you know, uh, funny, sometimes some kind of some sad and some tragic things happen. And you're just kind of making your way through the landscape. And uh, you eventually uh, come to a place, Canterbury, you know, and um, it's more of a journey in that sense than a freeway. So that's kind of the the sense, I think, of the use of way in both of those books. The use of that word way really contrasts with a destination, right? Yes. It's very different from a point of arrival, that we have finally got it right. We've got the right rituals. We've got the right hierarchy. We've got the right authority structures. We've got the right doctrines. Uh, we've got the right roles for men and women, all of those things that you know, a lot of us, when we hear the word Christianity, that's what we think. It's a destination, but a way is very different. And I wonder if in closing, I could invite us to just just sort of speak freely and imagine something. If we acknowledge that Christianity has been many different things uh, in the past, it, it has been an authority structure that legitimized slavery, and it has been an authority structure that says slavery is wrong, set your slaves free, never even think of doing that again. It has been a community that suppressed women. It has been a community that in other cases dignified and liberated women. It's done opposite things at the opposite times. And then we look around at the world today and we see Christianity doing opposite things. We're in this horrible conflict that's unfolding in Europe right now, in, in Ukraine and Russia, two different sectors of the church are justifying uh, and condemning the same acts. And so Christianity can be all these different things. It has been all these different things. What do you feel that Christianity is in some way striving to become now, at least in you? In other words, for you as a place where the Christian faith is happening, what do you feel that Christianity is striving to become? I, I hope that's not too vague or even personal question, but Michael, what do you think for you in, in relation to that question? I think we all have our kind of metaphor of choice. And, and, and I mentioned already that I, I was captivated by this idea that Jung had, which was not his idea. It's a very old, very Christian idea that Christianity is a treatment plan for the ills of the human soul. And so I think for me, Christianity stepping out of the fantasy of a world without suffering or, or you know, becoming less obsessed with our own innocence and our own perfection, but becoming something that faces the reality of a broken world and the reality of its own responsibility and our own responsibility for having contributed to that pain and suffering. Um, a Christianity that rolls up its sleeves to work for the healing of the world and the healing of the soul, you know, I know that's very kind of generic and maybe even a little bit romantic, but it's it's kind of what keeps me going. Let me just 
restate what you just said. So building on that insight from Jung, a treatment plan for the ills of the human soul, it's very, very different than uh, uh, an understanding of Christianity as an escape plan for heaven or an assumption that the human soul is irredeemable, except if you get an exemption that you get either by going through the right sacraments or holding the right beliefs or saying the right prayer or uh, submitting to the right uh, episcopacy or whatever, that no, this thing is striving to to really address the actual lived pain and experience and dysfunction and biases and ignorance and all the rest of the human soul. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we don't we don't have time to get into like Greek ideas of apokatastasis and epictasis, but <laughs> but this idea that Christianity is an infinite process of trying again, mm. right? That for me, you know, makes me weep. Mm. That like, we might get it wrong, we might screw it up, but we try again, we try again, we try again, and we try again forever. Wow, that fits with the way so much. You know, they just keep going back. Right? And try yeah. to find the way. Oh my goodness gracious. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> yeah. And Diana, that really resonates too with what you were saying, that it's not just true of Christianity, but it's true of a country, you know, and uh, and a civilization and so on. Yeah, it's not a defined thing that we have figured out, but we're we're trying again and again and again. Well, how would you respond to that question, Diana? What do you think in this moment, and you're just speaking for yourself, but that you think Christianity is striving to become uh, in this moment? If I can just go back to the place where I opened with the question of spirit and form that I picked up on back in 1996 with my dissertation is that I think on both in both of those arenas, both in this, what is the spirit of Christianity and like, what are the form, what, what's the form that the faith is, is moving towards when it comes to the, the spirit of the Jesus story, the spirit that I hope we are, that becomes our way, as it were, as we are tr- we're trying something new, is that there's there's been this t- terrible tension. Is Christianity a spirit of control and a spirit of violence, or is Christianity a spirit of compassion and a spirit of liberation? And so there's there's always this sort of tension, I think, that's been in the heart of it all. Is it about dominating someone, dominating the world, dominating creation, or is it about freeing all of those things? And one comes, is accompanied with violence, and one, I think, is accompanied with 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 the purest forms of, of love and empathy. So, we're in this, this, this struggle about the spirit of faith, but we're also, I think, in the struggle for the form of faith. All of the work that I've done since that 1996 book uh, it really points towards these two structures that I've been playing with all these years. And that is, is Christianity essentially a, a pyramid of power or is Christianity a table in the wilderness? And um, of course, uh, as an Episcopalian, I got to say, boy, that's, that's at the heart of the denomination of which I am a part. Every single day, my own church struggles with, are we a pyramid of authority and power or are we a table being set in the wilderness? And it's not clear which one of those two things will win um, in the setting which I find myself, you know, being a member. But I think that's true for Christianity as a whole. And so, so I see both in the area of spirit and form, this sort of moments of historical temptation 
Is it about control or liberation? Is it about pyramid or table? And I know which ones I want and which ones I've dedicated myself to and which ones I strive towards um, constantly in my writing, in my own prayer life and in the, you know, just being involved in the world around me is that if this faith is not one of liberation and deep, just extravagant love, and if it's not about setting a table in the wilderness, I sure don't want any part of it. But I stay Christian because of those possibilities of liberation and love and of the table. And the most remarkable thing for me as a historian is that the story of liberation and love, the story of the table, that those two stories are still alive because the world has tried to destroy those two stories for the last 2,000 years. And the church has even tried to destroy those two stories for the last 2,000 years. And that there's even a whisper of them left on this planet means that Jesus means something. As we close this first episode of Learning How to See, season three, I'd like to invite you to just savor these words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to imagine the identity that comes from affirming not exactly a set of beliefs or doctrines or practices, but a way of being in the world, a way of blessing in the world. We bless the poor and vulnerable and those in solidarity with the poor and vulnerable, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We bless those bereaved who mourn for loved ones they have lost to illness and violence, for they will be comforted. We bless those brave enough to be nonviolent, for they will inherit the earth. We bless those who are insatiably hungry and thirsty for justice, for they will be filled. We bless all who choose to be merciful rather than vengeful, for they will receive mercy. We bless all who choose to be pure in heart rather than deceitful and hypocritical, for they will see God. We bless all who choose to be spreaders of peace rather than spreaders of hate, for they will be called children of God. We bless all who are persecuted, harassed, heckled, rejected, and mocked for standing for justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for standing with Jesus, for standing for what he stood for. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks so much to Diana Butler-Bass and to Mike Petro for their wonderful conversation in this episode. Thanks to the Center for Action and Contemplation 
And uh, thanks to all of you who care enough to listen to Learning How to See. Thank you. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.